0: Uh, we take an oath uh, when we finish medical school um, to do no harm, and this issue of the opioid crisis is very much uh, at odds with that, among other reasons, other causes for it that we'll discuss. So welcome, everyone. This
1: is the first episode of the podcast, Pain Demonium. Um, we are really fortunate to have today one of the co-founders of the podcast, uh, it's an honor to have you here, Dr. Elias. This is actually uh, incredibly uh, personal because we've been working together for the past couple of months on a lot of opioid work. That's right. And besides that, you're a professor of mine, which is uh, kind of great to have you here at, at Jefferson and Rothman as well. Um, the podcast, Pain Demonium, so we're, we, we decided that we wanted to have a, a medium to talk about issues relating around opioids. Um, obviously with the current pandemic, it hasn't gotten any better over the past 20 years um, in totally addressing it. But you know, there are certain things that we can talk about to educate people on what research is going on currently, as well as how we can make opioid legislation better, as well as doctors and physicians and nurses, healthcare professionals more aware of the problems that our patients face. Quick introduction. For those of you who do not know Dr. Ilias, he is a professor of orthopedic surgery and the fellowship program director of hand surgery here at Rothman Institute at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia. Dr. Ilias is also the former president of the Pennsylvania Orthopedic Society. Many of his accomplishments we'll talk about today. He is also, as we're gonna talk about right now, the uh, founding president of the Rothman Institute Foundation for Opioid Research and Education, which um, is a brand new initiative to help further our goal in combating the opioid epidemic in this country, so Dr. Elias, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you, Kim. It's uh, it's really a pleasure. Thanks for for organizing this. It uh, um, it's really one of the, my most satisfying things that I get to do as an educator is work with people like yourself who are uh, bright young minds trying to make a difference, and indeed, you are making a difference. Um, I often learn as much from you as I ever can really teach you. So thank you. Um, and indeed, this is, a, this is an exciting project. Um, the uh, Opioid Foundation is something that we as members of the Rothman Orthopedic Institute have been thinking about for some time, and it's most recently come into fruition. And it really represents a, a culmination uh, of a number of um, uh, uh, issues and priorities for us. Uh, Firstly and foremost, we believe that uh, the issue of the opioid crisis or opioid epidemic uh, is really a critical one facing not only uh, the country as a whole and our community locally, but in particular, the medical community and medical providers who prescribe opioids. So uh, we take an oath uh, when we finish medical school um, to do no harm, and this issue of the opioid crisis is very much uh, at odds with that, among other reasons, other causes for that we'll discuss. In addition, uh, we at at the Rothman Institute take a lot of pride in leading uh, in the musculoskeletal space, uh, clinically, uh, academically, and research-wise. And we have already done uh, a significant amount of research at the Rothman Institute around opioids, uh, the opioid crisis, and pain management in terms of seeking ways to minimize uh, the need for opioids um, while maximizing patients' uh, post-operative um, pain management experience. And it seemed um, like a, a unique opportunity for us to be able to uh, dedicate some full-time resources around this to really supercharge our efforts. And if I may, I'll just, just really quickly lay out what the goals of the foundation art, Absolutely. So the, the, the mission or goals of the foundation is threefold. Number one, uh, to educate patients and providers or prescribers on safe opioid consumption and prescribing habits, respectively. Number two, it's um, uh, promoting and performing research around um, Um, opioid-sparing pain management strategies, be it for uh, post-surgical, post-injury, or chronic pain dynamics. And thirdly, um, uh, the third mission is around uh, advocacy in helping our legislators develop evidence-based pain management strategies, serving um, essentially as a think tank Uh, in terms of synthesizing all the data that's out there to help inform our policymakers on how to pursue smarter policies.
1: Absolutely. And I think one of the key things about the foundation in itself is that it's not just geared towards one clientele. Uh, It's multifaceted. You talked just now about how we're not just doing research in the lab, talking to patients, but we're also trying to make advocacy programs work in combating the opioid epidemic because there's a lot of policies out there that don't necessarily have evidence to back them up, um, as well as a lot of stigma in the opioid community about what works and what doesn't. And I think um, what what Rothman has done is not just looked at a specific research bend, but also how do we make things work um, in, in an entire generality? You know, From everything from before the operation education To what we're going to be using in the actual operation for pain control as well as any type of counseling that's needed to prevent further what we call diversion um which we'll talk a little bit about later um did you feel like there was a need to have that um was there a gap that you saw specifically here in pennsylvania
0: oh very much so um you know, so I, I consider myself a mid-career professional. I've been in practice for about 15 years. And when I was a resident, you know, in the That's early... incredible how you've been able to do so much. <laughs> in Seriously. The, in the early 2000s, um, you know, there was, you know, when I started internship in, you know, uh, in the beginning of the of the century, if you will, there was really no guidelines or education around opiates. We learned about how opiates work in medical school from a pharmacology perspective, but not in terms of, um, you know, how to prescribe it. Did you ever get to
1: meet any patients when you were in medical school who were suffering from opioid abuse?
0: No, frankly, I you know I really didn't start coming across that until residency and medical school. I'm sorry, residency in practice, not in medical school. Um, But I'll share in a moment um, one patient encounter, which I think uh, will be relevant to our discussion here. But really, there wasn't a lot around the educational side. And um, that was really the early kind of that when you look back at the opioid crisis now, it really started at that time with really aggressive pain management by by us as providers because we weren't really informed how to do it. We were advised to manage pain aggressively because when I was an intern, pain was the fifth vital sign we talked about on rounds and we were managed very aggressively. We didn't really understand at the time well what the long-term ramifications were. Uh, there was aggressive at, you know, advertising and marketing from pharma around it. Uh, there was a demand and expectation by patients for really aggressive pain management as well. Uh, and there was regula- regulatory influences on us that were uh, driving aggressive pain management also from JCO and other bodies. So it was a confluence of all of those things that ultimately led to – both um, a high amount of opioid prescribing and a secondary a high demand by the public for opioid prescriptions that led, really that led as a confluence uh, to where we are today. But to ask your answer your first question, indeed, um, there's a huge gap uh, initially in our understanding of this. Um, and in just a relatively short amount of time, we've been, able, we've been able to close that gap and made some really innovative progress in this Absolutely, space. Yeah. And I've been impressed by the responsiveness by both the public and prescribers uh, on smarter pain management strategies. But if I may, you know, when we talk about uh, the opioid crisis and pain management, I think it's important to um, uh, define what space we're talking about. And when I look at this problem, I look at it from two ends. There's a prevention side and the treatment side. So the treatment side or what do we do for those who suffer from opioid uh, addiction, right? Then there's the prevention side. That's where that's the space that we live in right now in terms of our foundation is what can we do to prevent in, uh, addiction in the first place? And I think that's where prescribers and the public can be most effective in ultimately mitigating the opioid crisis. Once there is, a, once there is an addiction, that's the other side. That's the, the treatment side. And admittedly not in the realm of expertise of orthopedic surgeons and other surgical providers, but on the prevention side, we very much can have a strong um, influence. And moreover, when I look at the prevention side, uh, and you touched upon this, you can divide it broadly, and it helps me as a, as a, as not a particularly bright person to categorize things so I can help me understand it better, is what can you do preoperatively or pre-injury, intraoperatively, and then postoperatively. There's points to intervene at every one of those uh, uh, periods of time um, to prevent uh, and uh, opioid addiction and minimize the need for opiates. similarly you can look at um, where in the pain pathway we can affect change from a research perspective can you there's generally considered three spots the area of injury the way nerves conduct the pain experience and how the brain perceives it and thirdly we can look at it and when we when we deal with pain management issues prevention is what type of pain are you managing are you managing acute pain chronic pain and cancer pain so i, I put all this out there because You know, when we have different discussions, sometimes we confuse these distinctions a bit. But there are three different categories uh, of of pain on the prevention side that we want to focus our efforts on and, and try to make a difference.
1: Have you found any of your colleagues who have maybe grown up or practiced or started practicing during a similar pain period of time in the early 90s as well as the early 2000s that have had similar experiences
0: Oh, I would I would argue that I think that experience was fairly ubiquitous in the '90s and early 2000s, where we were prescribing quite aggressively uh, opioids because again we just didn't have a sense of it, you know. And, and what's happened over time, it's become a cultural phenomenon. I'll give you an example. Um, you know, when if you perform a surgery today, doesn't matter if it's orthopedics or general or ENT, whatever it may be, when a patient leaves a PACU, and I'm not blaming nurses, it's just the culture of medicine, they'll say, "Where is the pain? Where is the opioid prescription for this patient?" That's a very American phenomenon. Um, I've had the, the the privilege of having the opportunity to travel all around the world and operate in many countries and educated in many countries and that is not a ubiquitous phenomenon
1: how do they handle pain control v-
0: extremely differently they use opioids as, as typically a last resort they were where, like,
1: where have you been is this, if, i've been i've or? been
0: asia mm-hmm. middle east um and um and africa as well and i can tell you that generally um when they use opioids it's when it's for really severe pain they turn to uh the acetaminophen family and the NSAIDs family as their primary tool for managing post operative pain. And so it's very much an American phenomenon. And one of the statistics you'll always hear is how Americans can right. you know, our five percent of the population consume eighty percent of, of oral opiates. And uh, that's a very telling statistic and it reflects both the combination of the demand for opiates by the by the public and patients and the and the willingness of, of prescribers traditionally to prescribe that those opiates. But it also it, it it lends stark contrast to what's happening, you know, around the world and where America stands out in a way that we really don't want to stand out. But I go back to my point: it's a, it's a cultural phenomenon, and we have to both educate the public, educate prescribes, and educate other healthcare professionals that no, you don't have to. You know, we've done a lot of research around this, and I'll give you just a really basic uh, example. My partner, Dr. Matson, and I did a uh, research project recently. We did a double-blinded prospective randomized trial of using either acetaminophen, 500 milligrams, which is Tylenol, ibuprofen, 600 milligrams, which is Motrin, uh, and, um, and then oxycodone, 5 milligrams, which is the opiate in Percocet. And we, we randomized patients to receive one of those three. They were blinded to what they were receiving. We, as the prescribers, were blinded to what we were giving. It was one of those three after a basic hand surgery procedure, carpal tunnel releases and trigger finger releases, which are very common hand surgery procedures. Um, And we found that there was no difference in the pain experience. Uh, irrespective of which of the three that they used. Now, first, I'll preface it by saying that I'm not saying that uh, those procedures are equal to a multi-level spinal fusion or a hysterectomy or something, you know, something more severe. But it, it challenges the notion that if you have a surgery, you have to have an opiate painkiller.
1: And this is so important, not just for these patients themselves, although it's important for them as well. But we talked previously about something called diversion, which is when someone who receives an opioid. Um, a prescription from a, uh, from a doctor, a physician, a surgeon, um, whether it be for an acute procedure or for chronic pain, whether or not those pills become fully used, they could be sold, they could be given to friends, and therefore further the addiction in the general population, which we're seeing a lot that over the years, and I believe you present on, on it as well, prescription opioids have actually, especially deaths related to those opioids, have actually decreased significantly or at least held steady um, since maybe the early 2010. Now, um, that has led to other people becoming abused to, or becoming uh, addicted to opioids as well. Um, And we're trying, or the research that you're kind of working on right now is trying to limit at least the general opioids in the atmosphere for patients so that, you know, that type of thing doesn't even happen, is that that?
0: Yeah, that's a really important point. I'm really happy you brought it up. I, I think we need to talk about diversion for a moment cause I think that's one of the most important nuances of the opioid crisis. Um, so, so firstly, just to take a step back. So one of the issues with opioid prescribing that us as prescribers have to be mindful of is that those medications have value, both financial value plus, um, you know, a psychoactive value, if you will. And when we overprescribe, those medications are out there in the community. And oftentimes, when when we're and we can talk about our research around overprescribing, we have a we have a ton of data looking at uh, the extremely high levels of inadvertent um, overprescribing of opioids that's occurring. And even very thoughtful, um, you know, prescribers, it's still happening at a very high, frankly alarming rate. That the problem with overprescribing is diversion. So what does diversion mean? That means. You come in, you have a surgery done, I give you 20 opioid painkillers. You end up consuming three to five to manage your post-operative pain, and, and now you're done. And Which,
1: by the way, your research has shown in multiple times that it's being underused very commonly.
0: Correct, absolutely right. We are, tend to over-prescribe. Most folks use very low amounts of opioids, particularly the more thoughtful pain management counseling you give a patient preoperatively, the even less they consume it. We can talk about counseling at another point. Um, so let's say you consume five pills total, you now have 15 pills in your possession. Now, those 15 pills are available for abuse by you or a family member or a friend or a friend of a friend. So we're disseminating these opioids out in the community that can then be directed to others. There was a study done a few years back, which I thought was very eye-opening. They, uh, the, the study surveyed um, heroin addicts. Who um, began their opium, began their addiction through prescription opioids, and they surveyed them and said, "Where did you get your prescription? Where did you get these right. opioids from?" And they said, 20 percent um, got them from their own doctors. Only twenty percent. They said fifty um, percent uh, got them, or sixty No, fifty percent got them from friends and family. Five uh, percent got them from drug deals, and then there was right. whatever other amount." But if you look at that, 20% got them from their own doctor. So you might say, well, only 20% are are getting the, are using the ones that are, uh, from their prescribers. The problem is the 50% that came from friends and family; those 50% got them from tho- from their okay. respective doctors. Right. So really, ultimately, what the study showed was that 70% of opiates that are used that are go on to be the causative opiate for abuse and addiction were prescription opioids. So that's why this concept of diversion is so important. So we have to be really mindful. So when you write a prescription for 10, 20, 30, 50 pills, you have to recognize that not only is the patient you're prescribing to at risk for addiction or abuse, but everyone that they're in contact with has potentially has had access to those opioids for potentially uh, uh, addiction or abuse.
1: Absolutely. And I guess that's a great way to kind of filter in how research is so fundamental towards um making opioid prescribing a lot better for our patients in terms of education so you know you touched on that previously um you obviously and your colleagues um actually some of my medical student colleagues as well have worked with the foundation to kind of understand how pre-operative counseling can kind of decrease that and i've printed out right here I, i saw this from the pennsylvania orthopedic society a little as simple as a handout like a little piece of paper and it talks about things that we want to talk about expectations for post-operative pain management uh, pain medication management and obviously it starts with pre-operative but um, the goal here is to improve pain um, in in a more um, in a more conservative way to kind of decrease like you said the opioids in the street what do you necessarily what have you found in your research and what do you when you see a patient before uh, an operation whether it be a, a very invasive one or a non-invasive one, what do you normally tell your patients and what's important for other physicians to tell their patients?
0: Yeah, thanks for asking. I mean, if there's one takeaway from uh, today's discussion, I would say, actually, I would say two things. One is be mindful of the amounts we're prescribing because the diversion. Two, if there's one thing you want to implement besides minimizing the amounts you prescribe is counseling a patient. So firstly, I want to recognize that Pennsylvania Orthopedic Society, we were early in the curve uh, as a state organization to recognize that um, the opioid crisis was affecting our, our residents of our state and to, to put together some evidence-based guidelines for our prescribers to, to, to adopt and, and utilize. And we, we made multiple recommendations, such as um, s- communicating with our patients ahead of time about the pain experience they anticipate, um, what are some non-opioid alternatives to, to utilize first, start with low-dose opioids first, uh, what's the duration we expect that they need to take, et cetera. Um, so a number of things that we had done that we, we found to be quite helpful and was uh, adopted. Now, specifically, what do I do and what we're trying to do roll out more broadly, both in our practice here, the North Orthopedic Institute practice, as well as broadly with other prescribers, is to adopt formal preoperative opioid counseling. So what I do with my patients, and we've studied this and I can share my research findings with them, is that when a patient comes in for surgery, we have them watch a five-minute video. On, on,
1: on an iPad? On, an, I, on an iPad.
0: Yeah. On an iPad. And it's a video that, that uh, mine is actually very archaic. It's a PowerPoint that I dubbed and turned <laughs> into a, 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 a movie that my daughter showed me how to do. Um, it's very unsophisticated. For, for
1: those who are unaware, Dr. Elias' kids are very creative. Um, <laughs> one of them even came up with a, a bunch of names for this podcast. and It seems like that's where he gets a lot of his creativity from. And I, I love I want to point out.
0: <laughs> indeed. indeed. They're, they're definitely more creative than I am. But... Uh, um, and so, basically, the patient watches this five-minute video on an iPad before their surgery with me. And I found, firstly, that's the best time to do this because they're the most focused. Right? They're right. there for surgery. They're they're getting prep for surgery. They're waiting to go back. Pre-pandemic, they had family members with them that could watch the video with them. And the video basically goes over, you know, what uh, you know, what pain is after surgery, how we manage that pain, what are opioids, what are good about opioids, what are bad about opioids. What are the dangers of opioids? And then five formal recommendations that I give them in terms of what I expect that they, they should try to do. And that's been a, a remarkably well received. Patients appreciate that proactive discussion of pain management. They know that I'm very much on top of it. They also know that I'm very much cognizant of what I'm going to be prescribing them. I don't want them to take a lot. Um, it also passively educates them on, if, if they never were educated on, on this issue, um, about what, you know, the good and bad about opioids. And we've also studied this, and actually we have three or four papers on this, and my first pilot study on this, which has now been replicated with other studies, larger studies with the same findings, were that when we, um, when we randomized patients to counseling or formal counseling to no formal counseling after the same surgeries by the same surgeon, we found that those that were counseled had a two-thirds voluntary reduction of opiate consumption postoperatively. So just knowing that all the little nuances and recommendations, they consumed two-thirds less. And that was just through simple counseling. Now, counseling often seems hard and laborious, particularly for surgeons, because we don't have the time to sit there and talk for five, ten minutes. We're not therapists, so we don't have that. Our Our work lifestyles don't. You know, um, accommodate that necessarily, but I found that doing a video, especially in this in this tech savvy society that we live in now, uh, and patients like watching videos. They watch videos all day long on their devices. Um, has turned out to be very effective. Actually, where it's even easier for me, and I don't have to have these discussions actively anymore. They watch it before I even get to them, and I routinely get comments and saying this was very helpful. Thank you.
1: Do you find that patients, you know, a lot of them have experienced other surgeons, maybe in the area, maybe around town, who? You know don't have that same regard and they're even happy to spend 10 minutes with their surgeon before the operation just talking about these things
0: i've definitely seen in the past several years greater and greater awareness of mm-hmm. uh opioids and their dangers i think it's we're, we're seeing that just more in the in the lay public and in the lay press about discussing it I think more and more my colleagues are also um, being much more cognizant of it. Um, And and I think that ultimately we're going to really be able to um, uh, combat this opiate crisis more effectively. We're not seeing the numbers yet. To say that we are, you know, we're we're heading the right trajectory. You had mentioned this briefly. There was a, for the first downtick was in 2018, where opioid related deaths were down for the first time in 20 years. They've been climbing for 20 years. Every year, year over year over year, there's been more opioid related deaths. So that's not a good statistic. And 2018 was a, a, a 2018 into 2019 was our first small downturn. But now we're expecting an upturn again in 2020 based on preliminary numbers. Uh, I wonder be- what that could be from. <laughs> right, right, right <laughs> exactly. So with the pandemic, they're just creating more stresses on society, social stresses, financial stresses, health stresses, and unfortunately that often results in greater substance abuse. What,
1: what do you think, uh, I know that we talked about this previously, but what, what do you think um, in regards to COVID? Um, do, you, do you think that surgeons have more of a role even now to counsel their patients and be more proactive about that. Um, I know that we talked about legislative actions and and victories from the PA Ortho Society. Um, How have you felt about, you know, your colleagues uh, stepping up to the plate and kind of advocating for all these changes?
0: Uh, I I think, uh, you know, I think ultimately it's going to be the medical community, the healthcare professionals are going to lead us out of this, this problem. Um, I think the legislators are doing the best they can, but they're, they're only policymakers. Mm -hmm. So I think it's going to be led by healthcare professionals. And I think the public and our legislators will follow suit. Um, And and frankly, to answer your question, they've been very receptive. I think there's a a high level respect for, uh, for the work that we do broadly. Um, Because there's no ulterior motive. Even this foundation, I'm just going to make a plug, is that all myself and all of our board members um, are paid nothing to do this work. It's strictly on a volunteer basis because we believe it's important. Most of the funding currently comes from the generosity of physicians at the Rothman North Peak Institute uh, as well. So I think people recognize that we are you know, putting forth our best efforts and trying to walk the walk, not just talk the talk, in this, in this, in this effort. And uh, I would say that even beyond my, my practice, um, the greater uh, uh, physician community has been very much receptive to, and they recognize both the ill effects of, of opioid abuse and addiction and as well as they recognize the power that they have to impart positive change.
1: And I I want to talk quickly, if if you have a second, about the legal victories. I I know that the PA Ortho Society, um, among other things, has been working with Rothman to kind of further opioid education with the orthopedic uh, opioid symposium that we uh, recently, we were going to have one this year, unfortunately, it had to take place virtually. But uh, in previous years, we had the governor as well as uh, um, the Secretary of Health in, in Pennsylvania, uh, Rachel Rachel Levine, correct? Correct. And one of the things that I, I was reading about um, and that we talked about a lot is E-Prescribe, Act 96 in Pennsylvania. And one, that was one of the legislative victories that came out of uh, the P.A. Orthos Society, um, as well as working with the governor and the Department of Health here. Um, and we're starting to see some evidence come out free, you know, not necessarily published just yet, but throughout the country, you are seeing some sort of decrease trends. In Correct. Yes. Um, and that's important because like you said, um, it, it's a multifaceted problem that we have to address, not just, um, you know, in terms of legislating on the streets, but as well as with doctors, are there anything else that you want to talk about with regards to the ortho society that you thought was important to furthering opioid education?
0: You know, it was a really great opportunity for uh, the medical community and legislators to come together on this issue. There's a lot of common ground. So many things in politics becomes partisan and um, it can become quite uncomfortable, frankly. Um, this was one area where, you know, all the bodies were fairly well aligned. Now, there were some disagreements, don't get me wrong. Um, but for the most part, there was a lot of common ground to be had between uh, – the healthcare community um, um, and our legislators, and there's two things that we we worked really hard towards. The first one was the prescription drug monitoring program, which is something that's not unique to Pennsylvania. Um, this is a a, a uh, initiative where uh, physicians can prescribe electronically, so that um, I'm, I take the back where where physicians' prescriptions are are collected and monitored. And that um, both ph- and pharmacies have to provide this data, and physicians can then monitor what their patients are receiving. So that was the first thing. And Pennsylvania was actually relatively late to that. There other states that had uh, achieved uh, uh, prescription drug monitoring earlier, but there's. There's a lot of differences between uh, state-to-state programs in terms of how much data they have and, and enforcement of it, etc. But the second thing that we did, which I think was even more important, was e-prescribing. So traditionally, opioids in Pennsylvania and many other states required a paper prescription in order to get an opiate. So I can see how that could be problematic. It, <laughs> it was highly problematic for several reasons. One is, number one, you can either manipulate an opioid prescription, right? You can alter it in some way. We tend to lose paper things, so you can lose them, so you're writing for more. Patients would have to seek out the physician personally to get these prescriptions. So what that often led to was that the physicians would often give more at a time because it was so hard to, to get in contact sometimes to give them another one. And lastly, you couldn't refill it readily, right? So all of those things led to a situation where <clears throat> we were over-prescribing opioids uh, for the most part going to this e-prescribing which is something that we championed uh, very aggressively in
1: when when was this uh, do you remember the <clears throat> uh, it
0: was it um, it was signed in October 2018 and it was officially uh ex- it was put into practice in October 2019 so there was a year transition period and what that means now is if if, you, if I perform a surgery and I need, I'm prescribing an opiate or there's an injury or a chronic pain condition we're prescribing an opiate, I no longer give you a paper prescription. I send it electronically to your pharmacy that also automatically registers it at the prescription drug monitoring program. What that does is... Forces you to be more, as a patient, more honest about where you're getting your opiates from. It allows me to give a smaller amount because I can readily refill it if I need to. I can monitor where you're getting it from. So, um, and I can do it more expeditiously. I can do it off hours. People don't have to go to the emergency room to get it if it's on a Saturday or Sunday, if they have a pain issue, or, or overnight. All those things have really helped the process. Now, It is a little bit more onerous to have to go online to do that. I don't deny that. I find it onerous for myself as well. It was easier to write a prescription. But I think the greater good it's doing uh, is really remarkable. And we're starting to see that. Some of the data that we're doing right now is looking at opioid prescribing trends pre and post e-prescribing. And we're seeing huge drops in numbers that physicians are prescribing because now they don't need to prescribe this much. And also it forces patients to be more honest. For the small percentage of people that may be doctor shopping or getting opiates from different providers, multiple providers, it calls them out on it as well because we can readily see that, oh, you know, they're getting these from a number of providers. Absolutely. Um, I think that
1: just to add on to one of the things you talked about, the diversity in the PDMPs. Um, it's, it's really important for people to realize that the diversity, the, the aspects that make a PDMP robust can really affect how effective it is. And when you deal with legislators who may not necessarily know all the research, that is a huge help to know, okay, maybe this was not implemented correctly. Uh, maybe the, the legal basis for, you know, some sort of punishment or, or legal ramifications for not doing something needs to be upped. Um, But we've seen in our research that potentially in different aspects of a PDMP's robustness can have dramatic effects, dramatic effects. And so one of the things that we're working on is to try to make that clear uh, what works and what doesn't. Um, And I know that we can talk about this all day, but I want to just finish up on two very important things, and they can relate to each other, they they cannot. Um, Going back to the foundation, um, which is something that's you know incredibly exciting, not just for physicians and patients, but also for medical students. Um, I know I, a ton of my colleagues and fellow students who are involved in the foundation uh, working either with advocacy or for research. Uh, is there any future for uh, changing medical school education surrounding pain management? I know obviously a lot of it's changed already since you've been uh, in practice as well as in medical school. Uh, and and just if you can speak on the the general future of the foundation, where do you see research advocacy and uh, outreach to patients coming? Along?
0: Sure, thank you. Yeah, that's a, I think it's a good closing point. Let's let's talk about two things. So, firstly, on the education side, <clears throat> we talked a lot about educating patients. One of the other things that we're trying to do is educate prescribers, and the and the best groups to educate are always those who are going out into practice. So those who are graduating. So we're really focusing right now on developing um, <clears throat> a cr- a curriculums for evidence based opiates-bearing, pain management, uh, prescribing strategies for graduating medical students. And we're going to also expand this to graduating dental school students because dentists also prescribe a lot of opiates. And thirdly, also allied health professionals such as PAs and NPs. Um, and 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 provide this. these, these are going to be online uh, curriculums that we're going to offer to different schools for, for no charge for them to be able to educate their senior students on what do you do when... In an inpatient case, what do you do in an outpatient case? Give them scenarios and then educate them on the pros and cons of different strategies in a much more practical way. So we're really targeting um, graduating students. um, And I want to just recognize um, Jenna Adelbert, who's been taking the the lead on this. She's an MPH student at Jefferson as well as the MPH program who's assisting us in this effort, Uh, the School of uh, Public Health at Jefferson. Um, and then the other part is the research that you mentioned. And, and there's a lot of research that we're doing. And, and broadly, I would, I would say there's three areas where we're focusing our efforts. One is to continue to look at pain management strategies that minimize the, the need for opioids. And we're starting to expand that past orthopedics into other surgical specialties. The second thing we're looking at is um, um, health, public health data. So as you know, we've been trying to get data from the state of Pennsylvania, Um, To see how are things going in in Pennsylvania now that we have the PDMP and the e-prescribing legislation in effect for a few years, let's let's do let's drill down deeper and see how we're doing. What are the at-risk counties, at-risk regions, and then compare that nationally with the CDC data, the Wonder data that we have access to. So that's one part. uh, uh, That's the second part, and the third part is chronic pain, and in particular, I think one of the most exciting areas of research that that we're starting to do. Um, which I think is, is a wide-open area for study, is medical cannabis. Um, Pennsylvania, is, um, is um, as of the past two years, is one of the 30 states in the country where medical cannabis is, use is allowed. Um, there's a whole process, a certification process, et cetera, that it entails for chronic pain conditions. There's actually a number of diagnoses that qualify for medical cannabis. And we're starting to study it um, in a number of different ways. Um, and one of our board members, Dr. Ari Grice, is, uh, leads our medical cannabis program uh, for the Roth North Peak Institute, who's been integral to this process. And, I, and I, I recommend that you spend some time with him, too, to get his thoughts. But I think that's going to be an area of significant study and and um, adaptation over time once we understand. It. And I think that we're really very much in our infancy of understanding medical cannabis, uh, understanding how we can utilize it, what are the best indications for it, what are the best routes for it, what are the best dosages for it, uh, etc. Um, and in time, I think it's going to be a, a staple of how we manage chronic pain.
1: Absolutely. Well, we got our work cut out for us. <laughs> it's funny because, well, it, you know, it's, it's a little bit comical, but not so much. But it, it's, it, you know, we, we were making good progress. And I think this this pandemic that's going on globally right now you know we're gonna need to really hone down on what works and what doesn't, as well as futures for pain management, and that's definitely where Dr. Grice comes in. And marijuana, especially medicinally, comes in as well. Thank you so much for your time, Senator Elias. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Um, Kai. We are we are as as a medical community, we are very grateful for people like you who are working, uh, you know, your entire life really for for change, helping everyone, our patients. I mean, this problem affects every demographic that we can look at, and whether that be a role in the country, know, everywhere. And um, it's important work that needs to be done. And we are very, very thankful that we have you here at Jefferson. People like me can learn from what you've done and what you're gonna do in the future.
0: That's very generous, thank you. No, no, it's, it's, a, it's a privilege, it's a responsibility. I'm happy to do it, and I'm happy to have the opportunity to work with people like yourself, who I know are gonna to continue to lead the charge well past me. Thank you so much.